Hello and welcome to Decision NYC with Ben Max. I'm Ben Max, your host and the executive editor of Gotham Gazette. The 2021 New York City election season is underway and it's poised to be the most significant municipal election in decades. All of city government is on the ballot and because so few incumbents are eligible to run for re-election due to term limits, many new office holders are being elected. New Yorkers are not only electing a new class of office holders, but the next roster of leadership for the city in a moment of crisis. There will be a new mayor of New York City elected here in 2021, as well as a new city controller, new borough presidents, and many new city council members. There are some incumbents that are eligible and seeking re-election, and there's a very crowded and competitive race for Manhattan District Attorney, and even more. Party primaries are set for June, and the general election in the fall will culminate on November 2nd. This is the first full set of municipal elections with both early voting and the new ranked choice voting system, which applies to party primaries and special elections only, and we'll explain that at length in a separate show. The city election cycle would be of enormous importance under even usual circumstances, but it's unfolding at this time of great crisis for the city, raising the stakes of the decisions that you, the voter, will make. The new wave of city leadership will, quite clearly, make or break the city's recovery from the devastation of the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on health, jobs, families, housing, education, and more. So we're pleased to bring you this new series of interviews with the candidates running for mayor of New York City, as well as other candidates for office. These one-on-one -on -one conversations will help you get to know the candidates better, learn about their backgrounds and platforms, and their vision for the future of our city. We hope this and other interviews will help you sort through your many choices and make a very informed decision when it's time to vote. So on to today's conversation. Joining me now by Zoom is Diane Morales, who is a Democratic candidate for mayor of New York City. Diane, thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to see you. So we're going to get into lots in this conversation, but why don't you give folks a little bit of an overview of your background, uh, your resume, who you are, where you come from? Sure. Um, so I am a first generation Puerto Rican. I was born and raised in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, um, to working class family. Uh, my dad was a union worker and my mom was actually a, a secretary at a leather workers union uh, that no longer exists, I don't think. Um, I'm also the single mother of, of two uh, college students who are home these days. Um, but, you know, they both went through, through the public school system. Um, my daughter, actually, Gabriela, uh, is, a, a, is a sexual assault survivor who struggles with mental health challenges. Um, and my son's been racially profiled multiple times. Um, and most recently, in the you know, beginning of the protest this summer, was assaulted by the NYPD. I, you know, I feel like I have a firsthand experience, lived experience with some of the inequities um, and, and disparities in the city on the education front, the health, mental health front, and certainly in policing and as a woman of color. Um, that I, those experiences combined with my, ex, my professional experiences as an executive of organizations that have fought really to help people overcome the systemic and structural barriers to access and opportunity I think are, are a unique combination and have given me a unique perspective on some of the challenges that we're facing in the city. And um, that's essentially why I decided to jump into this race. I think that I've got a, a unique perspective and I think it's time for us to really have the sort of moral and political courage to confront some of those deeply rooted issues 
um, and make the changes that we need to make over the long term that are really going to benefit everybody. So let's we'll get to some of the thoughts on those changes in, in just a minute. Uh, first, uh, I think it'd be great for, for folks to hear a little bit more about that professional experience. I also just wanted to say I'm sorry uh, about what you shared about both both your your children and, and wishing them the best. Um, yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. I, I sure. have to say that, you know, I have spent quite a bit of time with both of them individually, just making sure that it was okay with them that I share their stories. Um, it's so inextricably linked with who I am and, and why I'm doing this. Um, but it's also one of those things that I recognize, you know, they needed to be okay with. Um, and, uh, and I've gotten their, both their consent and they both feel strongly about, about my doing this. Um, That's good for people, good for people to know as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, so on the, you know, on the professional front, um, I, I've had almost 30 years of experience, um, you know, running programs and, and providing services. I, I think, you know, 26 years ago, I was part of a, a, a team that founded an, a national organization um, called Jumpstart. It's an early childhood literacy organization that really worked to, to sort of bolster literacy development skills in preschool kids, um, you know, low income communities of color and primarily where, you know, where we know there's a language deficit that starts as early as 18 months. Um, and the, the cool thing about that program was that we, the way we did that work was to pair college students to train and pair college students to push into classroom settings and preschool settings to help bolster those literacy skills. And in doing that, we were also creating a pipeline to education with those college students by providing them with a, a child development associate, which is a credential that's recognized in the early childhood field. Um, so I was responsible for actually creating the national infrastructure to, to build that organization. And we also worked closely at that time with the Clinton administration, I'm gonna date myself a little bit, um, to, to um, create the America Reads legislation, which is in fact what allows uh, college work-study students to participate in AmeriCorps as part of national, national service. Um, so that's sort of like the, the long-term thing. I, you know, locally, I've done things like to develop a, a model in after-school programs that was adopted by the Department of Youth and Community Development. And so now every uh, after-school program, program in the city actually has the same model. Um, and that is an education specialist, which was a, a specific role that we created. Um, and I also, uh, you know, in my, my most recent career, uh, in the last decade in the South Bronx, created a cross-sector partnership program that provided training in the healthcare field for uh, people that were underemployed or unemployed. And that was in partnership with Montefiore Medical Center and Hostos Community College. And that program has, um, you know, exceeded national averages of, in terms of retention and promotion for the, the graduates that were successful. And so in that, in that work you did, that's workforce development, uh, other, other areas that your work touched on? Workforce development, um, you know, education, um, overcoming the sort of, you know, the achievement gap as they call it, um, supportive housing, um, you know, I've, I've developed and operated supporting housing, pro housing programs for some of, you know, homeless people with the most severe and persistently mental illness conditions with substance abuse, um, and also the, the sort of the last thing I did before leaving was to create uh, housing for young people who were homeless, um, aging out of foster care, and also struggling with mental illness. So what's at the root of some of these issues that you've been working on? Uh, what is the, the sort of systemic uh, roots of it all that, that need to be yanked up 
and replanted. When we talk about the achievement gap, when we talk about those early gaps in literacy, what, what's at the root there in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think about, we talk about, there's a lot of talk these days about the social determinants of health, right? Um, living in poverty and, and, and you know, um, the, the, the different sort of conditions that that exposes one to that have um, a, a, a negative impact on mental health, on physical health, on academic achievement, on economic opportunity, right? The, the disparities in wages between women and men, the disparities in wages between, um, you know, uh, the white counterparts and people of color. Um, all of those things are, are sort of systemic and structural and then have these like compounding effects on people's lives and their ability to live in dignity and to provide for their families. And so, you know, I really think that it's time for us, uh, it's time for us to kind of really be honest with ourselves and reflect on these issues and make a commitment to start addressing those things as opposed to the symptoms that arise as a result of those things. And, you know, we have an, uh, we have an unprecedented opportunity here. As, as hard as this year has been, and I don't wanna downplay that at all, um, we also have an unprecedented opportunity with all of the things you talked about in your opening about the, you know, the turnover and the, you know, the, the number of people that we can elect into office. We have an opportunity to really kind of like put a stake in the ground around, you know, we, we're not going to elect people who are just going to tinker around the edges or who are going to roll out a new Band-Aid. You know, we want people who are actually committed to digging deep, digging in to these hard issues. Um, but recognizing that we're, you know, there's a collective inter interdependence and we all do better when the people that, you know, run our city do better. Give us a couple of examples of, of you know, sort of more concretely what that would look like. Let's say you're mayor and let's say you get a city council that's like-minded that you can work with or, or that you can cajole to follow your vision because you'll have a mandate. Yeah. Uh, what are a couple of examples of what, what folks can sort of sink their teeth into to understand what that would look like? Sure, sure. So one of the things I've been, one of the phrases I've been using lately is, is like flipping the model on its head, right? So let's, let's talk about the economy, right? Uh, there's this notion that's been perpetuated around the idea that in order for us to come back economically, we need big corporations and big companies to come into the city and save us. But the reality of it is 50% of New Yorkers are employed by small and mid-sized businesses, right? So we could choose to go invest in the 50% that the big corporations would employ, or we could choose to prioritize local folks um, and, and support local mid, small and mid-sized businesses first by providing them with the tax incentives, by providing them with the grants and, and subsidies and the small or no interest loans um, and getting that 50% of the population back to work, right? Which then, you know, we know if people go back to work, they're, they're gonna start investing in the economy and that's how we start to get revive and revitalize things. It's just a different model, right? We're, we're prioritizing a different group in that. Um, we could say the same thing for housing. Um, you know, the housing, the, the, the housing industry in New York City has been profit driven. And you know, what if we in fact decided first that we were gonna prioritize community ownership and, and social housing and cooperative housing and community land banks? Um, it's, it's the same investments just targeted differently and prioritizing and centering people in the city first. 
And so on, on housing, um, let's, let's talk a little bit more about that because pre-pandemic, during pandemic, hopefully there's a post-pandemic you know, pandemic that's not too far off. This is a crisis. It takes different shape. It gets more severe uh, during these times and people facing potentially a, a wave of evictions, although we don't, you know, we don't know what policies might be put in place or funding that might come through. But what's the, what's the larger sort of way to think about housing in 2022 and beyond for years, you know, a long-term sort of housing plan uh, directed by City Hall, because we've seen Mayor de Blasio's housing plan, big ambitious number of units and affordable and use the, you know, use market rate to help fund affordable. What's the Diane Morales vision on that? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'll say two things first. Um, One is that, you know, you alluded to it, um, the housing crisis existed long before the pandemic, right? The pandemic has just like really exacerbated that and made it so much harder. Um, and so that's that goes to the issue of the root, right? Um, it's not, you know, it's not enough to sort of deal with just the pandemic. Uh, we've got to deal with the root of things. Um, that being said, we also have to deal with the pandemic and, and the sort of how, the extent to which that has, um, you know, exponentially exacerbated things. And so, you know, focusing on figuring out providing rent relief to to tenants because the majority of New Yorkers are in fact tenants. Um, But doing that in such a way that still protects the small homeowners, I'm very concerned about the, you know, the mom and pop folks, the grandmas. um, And I fall into that category, right? I own one home um, and I have one tenant. Um, And so, you know, and it's all I got, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm all for providing tenant relief and also, I want to be able to, from a wealth building perspective, you know, recognize that for many people, many low income black and brown people, the only access that they have to wealth building is through home ownership. Right. We don't um, want another foreclosure crisis. And so, right. So we have to make sure we take care of that. Um, that's, the, that's the immediate. I think from a, well, the longer term perspective, it goes to, you know, some of what I was referencing before in terms of really, what do we need to do to build people's ability to, the community's ability to, to self-determine? Um, you know, how do we look at all of the vacancies that have, you know, sprouted up across the city, either as a result of the pandemic or prior because folks are sitting on vacant apartments or vacant land waiting for the values to go up um, and, and benefiting from, you know, from tax deductions as a result of that. I think we need to think about those things. We need to look at how we can repurpose things. You know, um, uh, would you think about the, uh, the vacant storefronts? Like, let's be creative. Like, let's be innovative. Let's not be beholden to the old rules that actually helped to create this problem to begin with. Are you uh, uh, thinking more about public-private partnerships? Are you thinking about a city government that's doing a whole lot more and not really um, trying to work that closely with, you know, the the larger, let's say, you know, players on the on the private market? How are you thinking about how that happens, and does it necessitate a big influx of of money from from taxes on the wealthy to to support it? Yeah. So I'm thinking about. Um, what I would consider public-private par- partnerships, but I'm thinking about um, shifting the balance of, of, of power, essentially, right? Um, such that the community has more power um, and the community has sort of like a critical role in decision-making as opposed to a superficial or a symbolic role. Um, that a, a process that's not, I, you know, I, 
everybody should be at the table. We all have some skin in the game, right? We're all stakeholders in this and that includes developers. Um, I'm not saying that, um, you know, that my administration would block out the, that participation or that voice. It's just about shifting the proportion of influence and impact that those voices have. And I think developers have, um, they have a stake in the idea of housing being successful in New York City. Um, and it maybe it means reducing their their profit or their their tax incentives so that that money is going and being directed into this the, the community instead. Um, to your point about you know the influx of revenue, you know one of the things we're looking at is a land value tax um, as opposed to or in addition to property taxes, right? We you know there are uh, my understanding, and I'm admittedly an early student of this. Um, is that land value adopting a land value taxation um, model would actually, in fact, generate quite a bit of revenue for the city. Um, and then the other thing, the last thing I'll say on this, because uh, I could go on, is that I also think we need to look at the money that we do control and that we do have in the city budget, I don't believe is always used as effectively or efficiently as it could be. Mm -hmm. um, and that would certainly be one of the first things that I would look at before any of these other things. What are we wasting money on, do you think? Or, or how is money being ill-spent? A huge portion of the city budget is personnel. Uh, there's, there's massive personnel costs. And under Mayor de Blasio, the, the city uh, payroll has grown quite a bit. And he said, th these are good jobs. These are government jobs doing services. I'm fine with that. Um, but, but that's one chunk. Uh, but where do you think money is being wasted yep. in city government? Yep. So that is one chunk. I think you're, you're right about that. Um, and there, there are good jobs. And the ones that are filled are fine. Um, there's also a lot of vacancies um, in those in those departments, those city departments, um, and that money gets tied up in those budgets, whether it's vacant, the position is vacant or not. So my kind of thing on that is like, you know, if that position has been vacant for more than six months, maybe you don't need it. Mm. Um, and maybe we need to look at reclaiming those dollars and reallocating them elsewhere. Um, and then, you know, the other thing, the, the most bloated sort of budget in this city is the Department of, you know, the NYPD. And I've talked about that publicly about what I think, um, the idea that I feel like we need to divest and reinvest. Um, and that sort of would be one of my, one of my first priorities to take a really hard look at that budget. Um, you know, I've, I've talked about creating a, a community first responders department instead of that, but I think that there's other fat that could be trimmed there as well. Um, so I, you know, I think there's a lot in terms of the city budget. I think there's a lot in terms of um, contracts with consultants, um, consultants that get paid a lot of money to create a really, really big, heavy paper, you know, like holders, whatever those are, things are called, like, um, yeah, you know, they just sit on the shelves, right? Um, and and I, I'm not sure that, that that's the best use of our money, particularly in the middle of this crisis. So. I would really, really take a fine tooth comb to the budget. There's roughly 35 to 36,000 uniformed NYPD officers, another 15,000 civilian employees at the NYPD. Do you have a ballpark, a, a sense of what, what you'd want those numbers to look like in your re-envisioning of a community safety department? Um, is the number of uniformed officers carrying guns going from 35,000 to 10,000? I mean, what, you know, yeah. Do you have a sense of that yet or have you not yeah. gotten, gotten under the hood enough? Yeah, that's, you know, so that's a good question. I've been thinking about it more in terms of, of just sort of total bottom line for the, for the budget of the city. And I think, you know, I think, so, you know, just to be clear, right, this isn't a, um, 
uh, you know, snap your finger or like flip a switch kind of thing. I think we, there needs to be a progressive sort of um, reallocation. Um, the first hit would probably be the hardest hit, right? Um, in terms of just, it, it's also reflective of a culture shift and, and decreasing the budget. And I think, you know, um, I think we had called for first $1 billion and then $5 billion. Um, so, you know, starting starting there, um, because I think the, the thing that has to happen at the same time is the ramp, ramping up of the community first responders department um, and doing that in a way that um, is responsive to community needs and actually sets up that department to be successful by providing it with the resources that it needs. How is two or three billion, let's say, of the NYPD? The NYPD has a roughly $6 billion annual operating budget. There's several billion other dollars that are devoted to NYPD expenses. But how does two or three billion dollars of money currently going to the NYPD better spent? What do you what would you spend that money on in your in your new vision for public safety? Yeah, so I, I would, you know, I think we know that the majority actually of the calls that the NYPD responds to are not crimes. They are, you know, issues uh, related to some of those uh, social determinants of health that I was talking about earlier, right? The homelessness, mental health and behavioral health issues. Um, and so the idea of creating a team of professionals, of skilled and trained people who are able to intervene and de-escalate those types of situations. And not only that, but also then connect those people to services and programs will both save lives because who wants to send an armed person to you know, intervene in a, in, a, in a case with someone who's having a mental health breakdown, um, but it will also connect those people to, to something more, right? And so we wanna just, we wanna intervene in a way that's not just de-escalating, but also, allows for people to be connected to something that's going to help prevent that situation from reoccurring. Um, and that's, you know, that's where I think those dollars really need to be spent. Let's talk a little bit about education, a little bit more about education, I should say, since we started off on that a little bit. Uh, how do you think about addressing the challenges in the school system that have been embedded for decades now and you know there have been different mayoral approaches um you know that have made again some 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 impact clearly you know graduation rates have risen etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know you, you talked a lot about sort of radically rethinking a lot of what the city does and the biggest chunk of the city budget in terms of departments is the department of education uh educating a million students plus so what are you thinking about there in terms of how to reimagine and, and get some real differences in results yeah um, you know, the first thing I'll say on that is, you know, we've got an affinity group called Educators for Diane. Um, they're, you know, a citywide um, group of, of people who are struggling right now with the challenges, um, and they've been critical in sort of helping, you know, I obviously had my thoughts and ideas about this, but they've been critical in helping me to, to formulate these, my, my thinking around it. I'm also really sensitive to the fact that the D Department of Education has been sort of subjected, perhaps more than any other entity in the city, to like, you know, a radical overhaul, radical shifts and changes. Um, but but there are things that we need to tackle. And, and, you know, one of the things I feel like we've missed at this moment in time is specifically the opportunity to think about how we desegregate virtual classrooms. Um, you know, as, as much as going virtual has presented challenges, had we been thoughtful and really planful in a different kind of way, to first make sure that all of our students had access to the technology and infrastructure that they need. 
um, we could have begun to experiment with desegregating classrooms. There's no reason why the teacher, the best teacher from the Upper East Side couldn't have had um, a student from, uh, you know, from Brownsville and a student from Jamaica, Queens and a student from uh, the South Bronx in their classrooms had we sort of taken the time to think that through and, and plan for that. Um, so I think that's a missed opportunity I'm, and I'm hoping that we'll, you know, this, the city will catch on to that at some point because I think parents are actually willing to try just about anything these days because they're feeling so desperate. Um, but the other are, thing- are, I, you know, parents, are parents who have the resources, are parents who, you know, have the advantages, are they willing to try anything these days? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, but, you know, the, the parents who have the resources are real, a really small percentage of the of the overall student population. And I think, you know, if I'm going to center my agenda on equity and justice, I have to first center um, the families that don't have the, edu you know, the resources. And, and you know, I, I think obviously there needs to be conversation and education and bringing along of people who um, might have take issue with that. But I do think that there's a general openness. I do think, you know, the parents that have the resources, but are still participating in the public school system, there's a reason for that, right? There is something that they that they believe in. And I think tapping into that idea of what a public school system is supposed to offer um, and the idea of um, working to get New York City to really be the best public school system in the country um, is something that people could buy into. And now is the time, because I do think, I do think people are more open to experimenting with things. It's just, there's a need for clarity um, and leadership that's been missing also. Is desegregating the, the city schools uh, a top priority for, you know, again, let's just sort of say, uh, 2022, you're, you're taking office and, you know, school is sort of back to how it was, you know, people can go five days, et cetera. Are, is desegregating the city schools a top priority and how do you get it? If it is, how do you get it done? Yeah. I mean, I think, so I think the, the top priority is quality education for all, right? Um, you know, I think families uh, just, you know, having grown up in Bed-Stuy and having raised my children in Bed-Stuy, um, quite frankly, I was less concerned about the diversity in the classroom than I was about the quality of instruction. That to me was the most important thing. And so I think that if people are getting quality instruction, um, the desegregation thing is still really important, but it becomes kind of, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of push that to this to number two. I think right now the problem is that quality instruction and, and desegregation seem so, so linked, right? Because, yeah. um, and, Right, and this is not to disparage teachers um, in you know in particular communities because I, I understand that teachers are doing the best that they can. It's again, it goes to the idea of this being a systemic and structural thing, right? In terms of resources and and supports. So your um, focus is more on resources than redrawing district lines, for example. Absolutely, I think I think equitable you know funding is is critical and and full funding for schools is is important, and that would be a, a priority for me. I've two final questions in our in our last minute here so uh, they both have to be both have to be brief but that's okay they're designed okay. that way <laughs> one is um if you had to give mayor bill de blasio a letter grade and a, and a very brief sort of uh, rationale uh what would it be so i think you know 18 months ago it might have been a, a a b um and now it's very different now i you know now i think he's failing our communities um i think i don't i feel like he checked out a long time ago and um is not is not connecting or listening or responding to to the true communities of New York City in a way that we need during this crisis. 
And lastly, uh, do you have a role model uh, in politics or I guess otherwise, but, but maybe in politics, if you could stick to that, in terms of you know, whose politics align with yours and, and at least to some extent, not fully necessarily, but you know, do you have a role model in politics that you try to emulate or is a guidepost for you? Um, you know, I, I, I am a particular fan of Auntie Mac Maxine. Um, I, you know, I think um, her sort of- Maxine Waters. Yeah, sorry, yes. She's been um, steadfast and, and clear and kind of unapologetic. Um, and then, you know, I, I have to be honest that on a, on a sort of more sort of recent level, I, I think Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez has been absolutely um, inspiring in terms of her commitment to just, you know, calling it as she sees it and not, not backing down. Okay, well, thank you for that. Diane Morales, I appreciate the time. It's good to talk with you. We'll talk more as the, as the campaign unfolds. Thank you so much, Ben. Have a great right. one. And thank you for watching Decision NYC with Ben Max. Key decisions for New York City voters are coming up in June and the fall. There's a lot on the line for all of us and the future of our city. I hope this conversation and others are helpful. I'm Ben Max. See you next time.